Section 43 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fernandez. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, the New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton, Section 43. That master of paradox, the Dean of St. Paul's, has been at it again with his gay flippancies, and in a recent issue of the Evening Standard, gave an excellent example of the sides of the paradox as a way of being wrong on both sides at once. It may be an exaggeration to compare the dean to a fairy, but he certainly has the faculty of the Shakespearean fairies of following darkness like a dream, that is, of moving from point to point so carefully as always to remain in the dark. He is the citizen of an empire on which the sun never rises. How it is possible to box the compass without taking the sun is best illustrated in his own words. Some systems of education aim deliberately at making the pupil suggestible for life in certain directions. He is wrongly discouraged from challenging authority. We find exactly the same methods in Roman Catholic schools and in socialist schools. A violent twist is given to the children's minds, which it is hoped they will never be able to rectify. The system usually succeeds only too well. The victim of such training remains for life, incapable of thinking impartially for himself. Even when, as sometimes happens, there is a rigorous reaction against the mental servitude imposed upon him, he becomes not a reasonable citizen, but a rebel, again the government, no matter what the merits of the case may be. If our rulers had known a little more psychology, they could have seen that the one hope for Ireland depended on taking primary education out of the hands of the priests. Since the dean is interested in psychology, he will be glad to know that his own psychological process when writing this paragraph is very transparent and very entertaining. It is to the scientific eye like watching performing insects in a glass case. First of all, he started out with the idea that it might be possible to have a dig at Catholicism under cover of talking about education, and he selected the old conventional and commonplace fiction that Catholicism crushes the mind with a meekness that is mere servile submission. He throws in the socialists simply because they happen to be another sort of people he dislikes. Then he suddenly remembers that the Irish are Catholics and that the Irish, though despicable and detestable in the last degree, are not exactly despised for their meekness or detested for their submissiveness. He remembers abruptly that the Irish are hardly notable for their servile obedience and passive non-resistance. Even the socialists do not quite seem to fit in somehow. 
he has to reconstruct his great psychological and educational theory in a great hurry. The great psychological word reaction comes to his rescue. The Irish and the socialists experience a reaction by which their depressing education unduly exhilarates them and they are systematically silenced by being made too noisy. Everyone knows that Dean Ng is the great admirer of Chinese labor in this country and I think he would be a little surprised if I denounced China as the nation of ancestor worshippers who had naturally become a nation of parasites. I think he might sometimes be tempted to sympathize with Islam against Christendom and I think he would consider it odd if I said that the Muslims were such strict iconoclasts that they had all without exception become idolaters. He would not be immediately convinced if I proved that the passive character of the Hindu religion was the explanation of the feverish and ferocious activity of Hindus. It would seem a little too suggestive of that familiar criticism about paradoxes. The truth of the matter, of course, is perfectly simple. It is that the Dean is entirely wrong about the first facts with which his argument begins. The Hindu religion may in a sense be passive, and Hindus may be in the same sense passive. But the Catholic religion is not in any sense servile, and anyhow, he himself is witness to the fact that the Catholics are not servile. The creed does not crush a man's critical power in any sense whatever. It does not try to do it. But anyhow, he himself admits that it does not do it. He himself admits that it does the exact opposite. He actually sets out to sneer at us for our subservience and has to end the sentence by snarling at our liberty. And now let me apply to the passage the simple test of an elementary knowledge of history. What has been the actual working in practice of this paradox about obedience and rebellion? Unquestionably, the Dean is quite right in his formal statements. Catholics, including Irish Catholics, are taught that certain things are true by authority, and Catholics, especially Irish Catholics, do find themselves in conflict with government. Let us consider the concrete facts of what these contradictions have actually been. Irish Catholics, for instance, are taught by the authority of their priests a mystical theory of the value of something called purity. For example, that a woman's possession of herself and freedom from lawless touch is a part of her dignity. We need not here argue about this arbitrary notion. It certainly is affirmed with an authority which claims to be absolute and supernatural. Very well, the people thus instructed did find themselves under a government like that of Pitt in 1798, and this government found it convenient to restore order 
to the country by a military campaign which very largely consisted of outrages on women. This produced on the drugged intellects of the Catholic a curious corresponding impression. Obsessed with this doctrine of theirs, they did undoubtedly conclude that a rule by rape was in some way wrong. They found themselves against, or as the dean would prefer to say, again, the government. People of the sort oppose such government, whatever it does. Whether it tried rape or arson or massacres or the most varied forms of torture, they remained nevertheless dissatisfied and aloof. The irreconcilable Catholics remained rebels, and their rebellion did, as the dean says, depend on their arbitrary doctrine. It is quite true that if education had been taken out of the hands of the priests and the people had been taught that purity was worthless, they would not have had that reason for rebellious feelings. Or again, it is true that the smallest Catholic children are taught that the oppression of the poor is a sin crying to heaven for vengeance, and the dogma thus imposed upon them doubtless remained in their minds when thousands of them were evicted merely for voting for their own freedom and deliberately driven to starvation or exile. The dean would never have been puzzled so much by their spirit of opposition to government if their minds had not been artificially affected by the dogma about the moral peril of misgovernment. The same principle might be extended to any number of small examples. Castlereagh might have more chance of being remembered as a martyred saint if Catholics had not been taught that bribery is wrong. Bigot might be a more popular figure if they had not been taught that forgery is wrong. Clanricard might be an object of affection if their minds had not been drilled in the doctrine that avarice is one of the seven deadly sins. In other words, the dean is quite right in supposing that there is a connection between the authority in religion and the resistance in politics. But he is wrong in supposing that the connection is merely a reaction. The connection is merely a logical connection between the Irish having been dogmatically taught that certain things are wicked and the English having incessantly done them. But it is perfectly true that it is the morality taught by priests which injects into the popular mind the notion that a black and tan was not perfectly moral. In that sense, the dean is quite right. Indeed, he is more right than he knows. The Irish were again that sort of government because they had been educated to think that sort of government was again God Almighty. But in the face of these plain facts, which no historian has ever dared to deny, which range over the whole of recent history, from the terror of 98, a hundred years ago, to the terror of the black and tans two years ago, I would respectfully suggest that the Dean of St. Paul's is making a fool of himself in regarding Irish rebellion as a curious problem of psychology.
There are many curious problems of psychology in the modern world, not excluding that of an educated and sane man who conceives it possible to take away popular education from the popular priesthood. I do not know what teachers he would substitute, but unless he substitutes those who will teach people that robbery is right, that cruelty is admirable, that any wrong can be done to the women and the weak of a conquered country, and that any lies can be told to whitewash those who have done it, he will be nearer to teaching anything that will justify the English record in Ireland. The morality substituted for the Catholic will have to be conceived on bold and novel lines. And I should like to see this distinguished Christian cleric develop it in his own entertaining fashion. End of section 43 Recording by Michelle Fernandez.